During my brief time helping to coach track, I noticed something each and every spring. You can always tell the hurdlers. Um, for those of you who can't see the slide, uh, the photo on our screens is of a, of a track burn on the forearm of a young hurdler. By the way, this particular young lady is a very good athlete, but like most athletes in the early spring, she didn't have her form yet, and she tripped over the hurdle. This was one of the least of her injuries. I bring that up because you and I face a couple of very high hurdles today. Here's what we're studying. We're studying repentance, the truth about repentance as revealed in the Psalms. But there are two huge hurdles in our path. Hurdle number one about studying repentance. Most people think repentance is important, even very important for other people. All right? We do not think that we need to repent. In fact, the very idea is repulsive. It never occurs to us. Thus, we stumble whenever a call for repentance is directed to us. We stop listening. In, in, a, in a spiritual sense, we, we trip over this and we get burned. Second big problem with repentance is that the concept is badly misused. I would say that it is one of the most abused biblical ideas. It is usually taken far out of context, stretched beyond all original meaning and other ideas added to it. I want, and I believe God wants, us to clear these hurdles. So please join me in prayer and then in the text. Let's pray together. Father, these two hurdles are huge. I have absorbed many wrong ideas about repentance from well-meaning people. So have my brethren. I don't like repentance being directed at me. The idea that I need to change is appalling, and I fight it in my flesh. So do my brethren. God, I am not capable of clearing these hurdles for your people. I am not. But you are. And I beg you to open your word to us that we might really change, that we might repent, not just today, but as a matter of our life course. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. For the truth about repentance, let's go to God's collection of the best songs ever. God's greatest hits are the Psalms. Go to Psalm number 51, if you would. Psalm 51, about a third of the way through the Psalms, you find number 51. Let's read it right now. Psalm 51. For the choir director, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, according to your, blot out my rebellion. Verse 2, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me against you. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. 
You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. And your good pleasure caused Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Stop there. God shows us true repentance here. In fact, that's the... That's the headline in your notes. You got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. On the left side, you see God shows us true repentance in Psalm 51. There are other passages about repentance. We'll examine some of them. But Psalm 51 is especially helpful because it is a very long treatment of this important subject. The setting, as we read, comes from the life of King David. David committed a litany of connected sins, coveting, lust, adultery, murder. In a rare twist for him, here, this will tell you everything you know about David at this stage. A rare twist for him. Everyone around him was acting brilliantly at this point in his life, and he was playing the rebellious fool. It was the exact opposite of what most of his life had been like. But then the prophet Nathan came to David, speaking God's words. He exposed David's sin. David responded with repentance, which he details for us in Psalm 51. Now, look at what we learn from God's word written by David. First and foremost, please catch this. If you catch nothing else, catch this. First and foremost, biblical repentance is founded in honesty about God. Look again at verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Three things told about God here, two directly, one by inference. God is characterized by grace. All right, we infer that since David asked Elohim to be gracious to him. God is characterized by faithful love and abundant compassion. Isn't that awesome? Tell me, all of you here who are long-term Bible students, are those things true of God? Is God a God of grace, faithful love, and abundant compassion? Yes or no? Yes, he most wonderfully and certainly is all those things. He gives grace according to his loving kindness and his abundant compassion. David knows that any change in David's life must start here. It must start with the character of God. God's character is the most important thing in the universe. To focus on God's character is what the Bible means when it speaks of being a man or a woman after God's own heart. A few years ago, I, I taught a study of David, and I shared this thought with you back then. Look at it, just a reminder. The Scripture declares that David was truly a man after God's own heart. That means, here's what that means. David shared the joy that God finds in his own greatness and goodness. David's singularity of focus on God led to his amazing successes and delights. His loss of that focus on God led to his painful defeats. The restoration of close relationship with God illustrates God's hesed, his covenant love, and David's true heart. That word hesed is used in our passage today. Look at verse 1. Psalm 51.1 employs hesed. It's one of the most amazing Old Testament words. Hesed is God's covenant undying love. It is a word that is very, very difficult to translate into any other language because it carries the idea of goodness and loyalty together. It means that God is completely good and thus he is completely loyal. Since we have never known any mere human who is completely good, and thus we've never known any mere human who is completely loyal, it, it's very difficult to get the concept of hesed in any other language. But God is full of hesed, and He's full of abundant compassion, which leads to His graciousness. And it is that graciousness of God that draws people to repentance, to change. Look at this. In the middle of a of a strong judgment passage in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul relates this surprising truth. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Take a look. Uh, Romans 2, 4. Do you despise the riches of God's kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? 
It's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Now, this is a very important statement about God's character and repentance. It is His kindness, His character that draws a human to repentance. Yes, God judges, and that is significant. But here in the midst of a judgment discussion where it is least expected, Paul tells us the real source of all true change. All true change comes because of the gracious character of God. Before we go on, I think it's helpful to look at the main words used for repentance in the Bible. Uh, the main Old Testament word is shub. That's your word for today, boys and girls. You get to learn a Hebrew word. Shub is the word. On the count of three, you get to say it. One, two, three. Shub. I really like what our visiting scholar uh, Doug Greenwald said when he was here last winter. He said this about shub. The Hebrew view of repentance involved a complete change in worldview. Shub is not just resolving to abstain from a particular sin, but abandoning everything you thought you knew about God and sin and embracing the covenant Yahweh. Close quotes. Very well said. The Greek idea is very similar. Metanoia is used throughout the New Testament. It was used in our Romans passage we just read. Metanoia means to change one's mind. That is to think totally differently. So the two testaments are presenting a unified idea of repentance. It is to change one's worldview. And it begins with thinking rightly about God, knowing the character of God. Next aspect of biblical repentance is honesty about self. Look at the next section in Psalm 51. Blot out my rebellion, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, my sin is always before me. Is there any doubt that this person who wrote this sees his wrong as wrong? Any doubt at all that this person sees sin as sin? Any doubt? None at all. A critical aspect of repentance is thus at work in David here. He sees his own sin as sin. In fact, now that God's grace has changed his mind, now that he has a different worldview, his sight is filled with his own sinfulness. His sin is always before him. When I was a boy, we had a dog that was always horribly chagrined whenever she did wrong. Wonderful border collie, and whenever she did anything wrong, she would hide, and she would cover her nose, and she would moan. And if you made her look at whatever she destroyed, the slipper or the trash can or whatever, she would, she would howl. She would howl with pain that you made her look on her sin. Fantastic dog. That's David. Is that you? Is that me? I sometimes think that my dog was much smarter than humans. She had the good sense to howl, to be horrified over her sin. People often don't. And this is especially a serious problem today because we are training ourselves, at least in the Western world, we are training ourselves to pretend that our sins aren't really wrong at all. A number of Christian thinkers have pointed out the most serious danger of our time is dishonesty about sin. Most serious danger of our time is dishonesty about sin. In his book, We Cannot Be Silent, Albert Muller stressed that, quote, we are facing nothing less than a comprehensive redefinition of life, love, and liberty and the very meaning of right and wrong. Close quote. Dr. Jim Dennison uh, does a brilliant job pointing out two particular factors about sin. He's too long-winded, so let me just summarize. This is my encapsulation. Uh, number one problem, immorality today is reserved only for those who call sin what it is. Those are the only people who are considered immoral. The supposed new moral high ground of our time is actually anti-morality, and anyone who disagrees is shouted down as repressive and dangerous. Uh, second thing that Dennison says about sin today, and he's right, as the 20th century sexual revolution reached its illogical but inevitable 21st century conclusion, there is now no middle ground at all. 
None. Uh, quote from Jim, churches will affirm the legitimacy of same-sex marriage and other unbiblical behaviors, or they will not. There is no in-between, close quote. The upshot of all this current nonsense of our time is that we have not only stopped loving other people enough to point out their sin and their need for repentance because we love them, we have become desensitized to sin in ourselves, in ourselves. And it makes perfect sense that this would occur. After all, when the whole world around you is telling you that that slide is orange, okay? That's what the world's saying. It's a, it's a dark blue-gray, right? It takes great courage in this day to look at that and say, that is not orange. I'm sorry, but it is blue-gray, dark blue. No, it is not a white dress. It is, um, it is that color. But here's why it's especially hard today to say that's not orange. Because, think, think, our own sin nature wants it to be orange. R really, folks, we want to pretend along with the rest of the world that... that that sin is not sin, because when we do that, we want to pretend that that's orange instead of blue, because when we do that, we can use it as a convenient reinforcement cover for all of our own sin. You see, if everybody else is screwed up to that level, then I can screw up to this level, and it's okay. David shows us a better way. David's honest. He calls blue, blue. Look at what he calls his actions. Look what he calls them. Guilt, sin, rebellion. Are you that honest about your own immorality? We need to be. And before we leave this section, please notice one other aspect of honesty about self. A person must recognize that he cannot rescue himself. Do you see that? One cannot earn grace. Only God, look at the text, only God can wash away my sin. But tragically, some churches teach the opposite of that. They, they call people to repentance, which is good, but they misstate that repentance is, is how one earns God's grace. Some of you, in fact, come from traditions where this idea is rampant. You were taught that God's unmerited favor is not unmerited at all. It's actually earned. John Harden summarizes the concept that repentance earns God's grace. This is from Father Harden's Modern Catholic Dictionary, and he says this, I quote, Repentance is the means by which one atones for sins committed. One atones, oneself, you atone for sins committed, uh, sins either by oneself or by others. If punishment is involved, that is called penitence. And ultimately, repentance includes the sacrament of penance, where confessed sins committed after baptism are absolved by a priest in the name of God. Close quote. Now, John Harden speaking for Roman Catholicism here, but listen, with just a little variation, this same thing could be said for many, many faith traditions. It especially could be said of paganism. That is an excellent description of paganism. But as we see in Psalm 51, that is not scriptural truth. That is religion. And it is religious untruth. The human, says Psalm 51, is utterly incapable of pulling herself up by her bootstraps. That's why that lie about repentance is so despicable. It implies agency and ability that human beings, quite frankly, just do not possess. It is only God's grace, ultimately seen in the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, that can remove my sin. That's why David begs the Lord to wash away his sin. That's why the great old song says it this way. In fact, read it with me. You take the underlined part. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We must change our minds about sin, about ourselves, especially our inability, and about our awesome God who alone saves. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Against you, 
You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You're right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. As we point out on the right side of our notes, biblical repentance is noble-minded about sin and sins. Biblical repentance is noble-minded about sin and sins. David sees the ultimate victim of his sins. The ultimate victim is the holy God, and he sees himself clearly, both his sin and his sins. And I'll explain the difference in a moment. The big idea here is that David is finally being noble-minded. By the way, that's not a Hebrew term. It's a great term the Greeks made up a little after this to describe somebody who sees clearly. A noble-minded person is someone who, is, who sees clearly. I was reminded by one of our elders, Randall Satchel, that this is why um, when Alexander Pope, great British author of the 19th century, when he translated Homer's Iliad into English, he said this, a noble mind disdains not to repent. A noble mind disdains not to repent. When we're noble-minded, when we see clearly, we run toward repentance, not away from it. By the way, noble-mindedness explains why tears are a very unreliable guide for true repentance. Let me say that again. Tears are a very unreliable guide for true repentance. Weeping and wailing is fine. In in fact, it can be very good. But sober-mindedness, clear eyes to see the truth, that is critical to real repentance. Tears are no measure at all. Tears are like, some of you here are physicians, tears are like when a patient comes and tells you they have pain. That's important to know, but it doesn't give you any real information about the source or the cause or what is really going on. I I have actually heard people say this, and I quote, repentance must involve outward displays of emotion before people. I've been told that. It's a very widespread fallacy, a misunderstanding. In fact, I have been told, and I quote again, I know that person didn't repent because I never saw him cry. Close quote. What a silly sideshow! While sorrow can be an important part of repentance, it is actually not a required thing anywhere in the Bible. It's certainly not required to cry in front of other people. David's issues are with God, as are all people's issues with God. Look, when the king declares that against God alone he has sinned, he is not making light of his serious infractions against other people. He's noting that everything comes back to God and his word. Right and wrong are not based on human constructs. Right and wrong are not based on human feelings or human emotions. Morality comes only from the unchanging God and his unchanging word. Thus, all immorality is against God. Repentance must be noble-minded about this. It must see clearly. And our problem goes deeper than mere sins. All humans except one have been born into a state of sin. That's why why verse 5 says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. God here exposes our sin condition, which is the base of our sins. Since Genesis chapter 3, you know this, right? Since Genesis 3, every person has a default setting that is warped. The image of God is defaced, but not erased. Since Adam and Eve, human beings know good and evil. Thus, real repentance sees clearly and takes into account all the horror of sin inherent in myself, not just the little bit that leaks out in sins. As a Hispanic pastor friend of mine, he puts it this way to his congregation. People, sin, it is in your blood, right? (laughs) Which further explains why repentance can never be a means of earning grace. We deserve nothing. We can earn nothing because we are in sin. That is not to say that biblical repentance is hopeless. Oh, on the contrary, it is full of hope. First thing, 
Biblical repentance understands the imagio dei, the, the image of God. For example, Psalm 139, written by the very same human author, David, inspired of the Holy Spirit, he said this, Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Despite the defacement of our lives, we are still created in God's image. His hand forms us as it does all of creation. How could we possibly be hopeless when we know that the Creator God is always at work? Amen? Amen. Second, biblical repentance is hopeful because of God's character. Because of His character. Go back to verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me, some translations say, you form for me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. We are hopeful. We're full of hope when we repent because we know God's character. Do you see why I said earlier that repentance must start with God's character? How... How can David think about this? Look at that text. How can he be hopeful, rejoicing even in the midst of this horrible mess that he has made of his life? He's joyful and glad because he knows the real God. Look, look what more we learn about Yahweh here. Look what we learn. God desires integrity and he does the work to bring it about deep within humans. Not just on the surface where it can be erased. Deep within. God can purify us completely and only God can. He is serious about sin. So that... Why is he serious about sin? So his people can rejoice. You know what happens to broken bones? They grow back stronger. God can remove all guilt, as we'll learn later in the Bible, through the sacrifice of his own son. Biblical repentance is not a downer. It is full of hope because it is all about God. We're going to deal with this further next time we meet uh, when we discuss the, the Psalms of Testimony. For now, let's read verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12. God created a clean heart for me. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Biblical repentance is for the sanctification of God's people, the holiness of God's people. One of the fallacies that one often hears is that repentance is only for non-believers. Now, this one, fascinatingly, uh, comes especially from evangelical Christians who sometimes emphasize repentance as something only meant for the non-Christian who is turning to faith in Jesus. But notice that in this most important passage in the Bible on repentance, Psalm 51, the repenter is one who already has the Holy Spirit. David was indwelt by God's Spirit, as every justified Christian will be a thousand years later after the day of Pentecost. To have God's Spirit in the Old Testament was slightly different than what you Christians possess today. For one thing, your possession of the Spirit is permanent. But for David and for us, the Spirit always signifies this. The Spirit always signifies a saved relationship with God. Thus, in Psalm 51, repentance is coming in a person who has already been made right before God, and he wants to have a willing attitude in his sanctification. He wants to feel the joy of salvation again. Have you Christians ever experienced this? Oh, I pray you have. You, it, here, here's what happens. God convicts you of sin, right? And as you respond to him, you get further and further into the ugliness of your own soul. You realize more and more what an absolute jerk you have been. And God graces you with noble-minded repentance. 
you change your mind, or, or better said, you let God change your mind, which leads to a new hunger for God's Spirit, a new hope in your soul that you'll be willing the way you used to be, actually even better now than what you used to be because now you know more about yourself and you know more about sin and you know even more about God. This is all very, very similar to what the Apostle Paul said when he was writing to Christians in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to what, everybody? Repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. Now, every marker in Corinthians, you can go read 2 Corinthians, every marker in that book makes it clear that Paul is writing to Christians here, all right? He even calls them brethren. That is a term the Apostle Paul only and exclusively uses of people who are already justified, that is, they're made right before God by faith in Jesus. And godly grief leads them to salvation. In this context, it's sanctification, salvation. It is the process by which God makes holy those whom he has made right. That's why our notes summarize biblical repentance is for the sanctification of God's people. Now, let me answer an excellent question here. There may be many, but I, I only have time for one. Um, this will save me a lot of mail this week, all right? If God says, you're looking at the Second Corinthians passage, and if God says here, through Paul, that worldly grief produces what, everybody? Death. Does that mean that non-Christians cannot repent? Is that what that's saying? It's an excellent question. The answer is that God is the prime mover, right? That if a human is just sorrowful about his sin, he's sad he sinned, or at least sad he got caught, but that doesn't lead him to trust the truth about the triune God. His grief does not lead to a life-giving relationship with Almighty Triune God. It is always the Holy Spirit who does that. It is always the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. He only he, God the Spirit, draws people to true repentance. Remember what Jesus said, John 16. He, the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So when I teach Scripture up here, and, and people become convicted, non-Christians become convicted to be justified by faith in Jesus, what do we know? What do we know? We know that it must be the Holy Spirit of God who drew them. He convicted them. No one else. Now later... After they trust in Jesus Christ, later when they're growing and stumbling along as a Christian, just like all of us, they will surely face times of biblical repentance, which will then develop them, Psalm 51, develop them in sanctification. Speaking of telling the truth and others responding, looking at verses 13 through 17. 13, go to verse 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humble heart. Stop there. A broken spirit and a contrite heart are not despised. David's saying that when we draw near to God in repentance... He draws near to us, which is exactly what led the Apostle James to share this. Writing to Jewish Christians a thousand years after David, James says something that you should read with me. Why don't you read the underlying text, James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Thank you. 
purify your hearts, double-minded people. This drawing near is all based on the Messiah. David looked forward to the Messiah's provision. James and we are looking back to it. But for all who trust Yahweh, it is all about Jesus. He paid the price of blood guilt that is rightly on the head of every single sinner. That's why the book of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and, and find grace to help in time of need. How about that for a blessing, right? Because Jesus is exactly who he said he was, because Jesus does what he does, we can draw near to God, receiving exactly what we need in every moment. Have you ever gotten just exactly what you needed at the precise moment you needed it? Have you? If, let's do, let's, let me ask this. If you have ever received a, a monetary windfall at exactly the right time, a hug just when you were feeling lonely, a worship song when your spirit was dry. If you've ever gotten just what you needed at the right time, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Awesome. Cool. That's a beautiful testimony. All right, then you should understand the much more important spiritual reality of Hebrews chapter 4. And that provision from God causes us to share. Because He meets us where we are, gives us what we need, we share. We share from our experience. We share from deep humility, as David does. Again, uh, we'll see next time more of this in the Testimonial Truth Psalms. And our sharing inspires others. Look what David says. It inspires others to turn to God. It inspires them to change their mind. It inspires them to repent. One time I was uh, playing volleyball with a church group at camp. I was, uh, I was leading program, wonderful church, great group of men and women. And we got into this volleyball game, just a pickup volleyball game late at night. Everybody was there, and it was getting intense. We were playing really well, not as well as you, Maggie. We were playing really well. And, we, I mean, it was, it was getting hot. It was really, everything was going great, really getting, getting excited, great game. Until the turning point moment was when the pastor of that church went up, beautiful jump, went up way elevated and made an awesome spike right into the face of a 60-year-old woman. Oh, yeah, total hush on the field, except over at the benches. You see, the pastor, who shall remain nameless, his wife, who was pregnant and on a bench watching all this, she jumped up out of her seat, and I'll change his name to protect the guilty. Uh, she said, William Stephen Benedict, meet me in the cabin right now. And she walked off, and the pastor lowered his head. And he helped the old lady up, gushing apologies, and he walked off without looking at anyone. And he went, and I don't know what happened in that cabin, but he was gone a while. <laughs> and when he came back, he called everybody together. And one of the most beautiful speeches I've ever heard, very short speech, he called us together and he shared how he had repented, how he had changed his mind. He said how sorry he was for taking a pickup volleyball game and making it into the NCAA tournament. <laughs> and, and how he was so grateful, he was so grateful for God's for God's grace, for God's forgiveness, for God's correction. Now, here's the amazing part, all right? Before that spike, a few of us were right there with him in terms of letting our competitive juices get out of control, right? We were, we were, we were actually right there with him. But when we saw him sin and we heard his story of repentance, what happened to us? We found it very easy to ratchet the whole thing down, right? We were changed. We were blessed to not have to make the same mistake he made because we learned from our repentant brother and, and his wife, right? <laughs> One last thing. This great psalm that teaches the truth about repentance, it closes with something that is very often overlooked, and that is that biblical repentance looks ahead to the coming kingdom. Read verses 18 and 19. 
In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The Messiah is the center of repentance. The character of God is the center of repentance. He's the one who secures healing from us, rescue from our sin. And the Messiah didn't just come once. He is, he is coming again to establish his promised kingdom. All God's people said... The Messiah will come, which is the point of the Zion reference here. When Jesus establishes his kingdom, sacrifices are once again going to be offered in Jerusalem. By the way, if that's a surprise to you, read the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel describes this in depth. It is going to be a part. Those sacrifices are going to be very joyful sacrifices. They're going to be pointing back to and celebrating Jesus' perfect sacrifice. The issue in Psalm 51 is that repentance is not merely concerned with me here now. Repentance always should look ahead to Christ and His kingdom then. We should remember that there is a third aspect to salvation, glorification. And, and when we who are justified, we who are justified, we who are being sanctified, when we are glorified, as we're promised in the Bible, in Jesus' kingdom, we're going to face, Christians are going to face judgment at the bima, the judgment seat of Christ. As we learned in other Psalms earlier in this series, there will be rewards and there will be loss of rewards at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, it behooves us to remember that when we repent, when we change our minds, the issues involved are not exclusively concerned with here and now. When we repent, we are looking ahead to how we're going to live in light of eternity. So let's do that. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Let's spend a moment looking ahead, thinking and living differently in light of eternity. In fact, if you're, if you're able and, and if you desire, I invite you to kneel. I think it can be helpful once in a while to kneel. You can come up here and join me. You can kneel up here. You can kneel where you're at. But whatever you do, let's get ourselves ready for a moment of repentance and prayer with the Lord. Let's prepare ourselves, everybody. Christian, turn to God right now. Draw near to God who promises to draw near to you. Ask God to expose where you, no one else, you are in need of a mind change. Lord, in what ways is my understanding of you too little? In what ways is it not biblical? God, in what ways am I not, where, where am I not thinking biblically about sin? Where am I excusing sin that I should be repenting of instead? Show me. Christian, knowing the persons and the character of the triune God, repent of your sin. Right now, let God change your worldview.
stop excusing that sin. And for all those who are studying with us today who are not yet Christians, please, please respond to the tugging of God's Spirit. You heard, we read the text, it is the Holy Spirit that draws you. Respond to Him. Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be, fully God, fully man. He died on the cross to pay for your sin because you cannot, you cannot earn anything. You are sinful through and through, and that's why you commit sins. You know it. But Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered that sin so that everyone who trusts him could follow him in everlasting life, could be made holy, could be glorified with him forever. Trust him now. Folks, I would love to pray for you beyond just this little moment we have. Um, in a moment when we take the offering, would you please drop your prayer cards in there? It's that part of your bulletin that tears off. If you trusted Jesus as Savior today, indicate that there's a place for that on the back of the card. If there is an area of repentance that I can pray for you, please write it down there. It's an honor to do so. Speaking of the offering, Father, I do pray for the offering. It is a, it is a great area of repentance. It exposes where my thinking is wrongly. My stewardship shows where my real thoughts are. And I pray that you will help me to give and help my brethren to give robustly and joyfully because of how richly you give to us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.